Welcome to episode four of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today we're talking about three main archetypes that we see in literature. Yep, so the three archetypes we're going to talk about today are the shapeshifter, the trickster, and the fool. We got a lot of the information about these archetypes from a great blog, debravega.wordpress.com. We'll add it in the show notes so that you can check that out. Um, but the first one that we're going to talk about is a shapeshifter. And a shapeshifter is a character that is not what they appear to be to either the hero or the reader, or in this case, the watcher, or both. That's right. So they can change physical form or they can have uh, other sorts of metamorphoses, which might be a little bit more metaphorical. Um, so I think either works. The literal examples might be things like werewolves. Yeah. Or um, vampires. Um, vampires, yeah. Um, if anyone has seen the Jim Carrey movie The Mask, yeah. Perfect example of a shapeshifter. Uh, one good literature example is uh, Melchiades from 100 Years of Solitude. Uh, he's a bit shape shifting because he's somewhat magical. Um, he goes through death, he comes back from death, um, and he has a lot of sort of elements of, of mysticism to him. Now, they don't necessarily have to be magical, quote unquote, to be a shapeshifter. And our shapeshifter that we're going to go through is Stringer Bell. Yeah, so we are putting forth the argument that Stringer Bell exhibits most of the defining traits of a shapeshifter. Let's talk about the idea that a shapeshifter is not who he appears to be. Stringer shows us a lot of different sides throughout the series. That's true. When we first meet Stringer, we do see him at the back of a courtroom looking very um, sharp. He's in a suit, a lot of business attire. And at this point, we don't know who Stringer is. Mm-hmm. One of the main places where Stringer is not who he appears to be is in his business class. That's true. So to the rest of the students or to the teacher, he looks like just another student uh, studying business. But we, the audience, know that he's actually involved in the drug trade. So that's another example of, you know, he is not what he appears to be. Yeah. And I mean, he's a really keener student even in this class like he's he's very well versed in all of the business language and he spends a lot of extra time talking to his teacher and he mm -hmm. you know what we know is that he's actually applying these lessons to the drug trade but of course the, right the business class and the teacher don't know that and what's interesting about the business language is that it brings up what I would say is a cue of when Stringer is shape-shifting which is code switching um, and code switching, for those that aren't familiar with that term, is um, transversing in between multiple languages or multiple dialects, um, kind of almost uh, either subconsciously or as an act of trying to ingratiate with a, a different culture. So when we see Stringer Bell saying things like, what do you do when you're in an oversaturated market and you have an inferior product? I would argue that that's code switching and that's Stringer Bell enacting his shapeshift into this more business student. Right. Um, and thinking about that and also knowing about that first scene where we very first meet Stringer in the courtroom, he's wearing his reading glasses a lot in those scenes. Yeah, so that would be a visual cue again of the shapeshifting. Um, when we see Stringer acting in his business capacity, he often does have those reading glasses either on, physically on his face, or close at hand. Mm -hmm. He's also very sharply dressed usually in those uh, scenes. He's got a suit on, 
usually a tie. Yeah, so another visual cue that he has shapeshifted into something else. If we consider McNulty the protagonist to Stringer's shapeshifter, we also see that, you know, in that final scene where McNulty goes to Stringer's apartment, he says out loud, who the fuck was I chasing? Because he's so surprised at what this different environment shows of Stringer. Right, and it's because he discovers a copy of The Art of War. Yes. uh, Which is a very sort of sophisticated reading material and far beyond what you might expect for someone who's just running a a drug trade. Right, and I think it's, yeah, it's definitely really symbolic of Stringer's just whole way of being where he just really is, he has no allegiances except to himself. Right, that's another key characteristic of a shapeshifter is that they switch allegiances multiple times and throughout the course of their plot arc you're never really sure whose side they're on mm-hmm. so we see stringer doing that a number of times for instance when he first double crosses avon by taking out d'angelo in prison right i think he also double crosses avon when he his whole shape-shifting starts to fall apart which to me is really encapsulated in that scene where he goes to levy after he's um paid clay davis two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get his grant applications through for b&b enterprises <laughs> He doesn't get the grant money, so then he goes to Levy and he says, you know, can you just look over these papers for me? So at that point, Levy basically schools him in Baltimore politics, and when Stringer is expecting that his bribes are going to get his grants through, Levy says, Clay Davis rain made you. He said, you know, you pay him the money, And if it rains, he takes credit. And if it doesn't rain, you pay him more money. And he keeps saying he's going to make it rain with a little bit more money. So to me, that's where Stringer's downfall really starts to happen. And it eventually leads to him switching allegiances again against Avon by becoming a confidential informant to the police about Avon. Right. And breaching his parole. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we know in that iconic scene where Stringer and Avon are on that balcony in in the condo we know that Stringer has betrayed Avon in that Mm -hmm. moment Mm -hmm. and we don't quite know yet but it's also starting to look like Avon is going to betray uh, Stringer which eventually leads to his downfall yeah so that sums up the shapeshifter Um, I think the next really important archetype to talk about is the trickster Yeah, the trickster and the shapeshifter are often mentioned in the same conversation because they do have some similarities, a little bit of unpredictability and uh, unsure of which allegiances they hold, Uh, but there are some differences. The main quality of the trickster is that they create havoc. And when I think about who creates havoc in the wire most often, obviously the answer is Omar. Definitely. Omar, he's an independent, he's lawless, and he doesn't play by anybody's rules but his own. So classic examples of the trickster archetype would be Bugs Bunny and Br'er Rabbit from more classic examples. But to be more contemporary, the Joker is a trickster from from Batman. From Batman. And also Tyler Durden from Fight Club is a trickster. He creates a lot of havoc and even spearheads Project Mayhem, which is actually what it's called. And it's just about being sort of anarchic. Interesting. And there's sort of almost, I don't know, like a joviality about the way uh, I think Omar hosts his havoc wreaking. Yeah, I think that 
having a gleeful delight in chaos is part of the trickster archetype and we see it with Omar especially because he's so almost theatrical with his with his machinations right so uh everybody knows if they're you know in the hood that uh when Omar comes whistling farmer in the dell you better you better be ready because he's definitely got a shotgun and he's definitely got his bulletproof vest on and he's probably going to rob you for your drugs yeah, so the the farmer and the doll almost becomes like a signature or a theme song, and I think that kind of musicality is is just for his own fun and his own delight. Yeah, especially when we think of whistling in other, like in, um, what was that show, that black and white show where they whistled the theme song? The Andy Griffith Show. Mm. Like that was all about just like wholesome good fun. Which also is an interesting juxtaposition to the Kill Bill theme song, which is also whistled. Yeah, I'm, I mean, someone could write a whole podcast about whistling, probably. <laughs> That's true. Um, and the other thing that you said was that he's quite theatrical. And that makes me think of his costumes when he's pulling his heists. Yeah, there was one example in season two when he goes to rob a stash house and he's dressed up in a dress with a wig and a wheelchair, pretending to be... Um, somebody's mother, I think, but it's just, it's above and beyond what's actually needed for, to rob a drug dealer. Yeah. The other thing that is a classic trickster um, quality is that they don't play by the rules. So Omar, despite not wanting to play by anyone else's rules, he has his very firm set of rules, which are a man must have a code. Mm -hmm. In his man must have a code theory, you never put your gun on a citizen, which is, of course, what gets him out of the stick-up with the convenience store woman, where Marlo tries to frame him for the murder of a citizen. Right. Um, he doesn't snitch. He eventually, you know, turns on the Barksdale crew because he feels that what they did to Brandon was outside of the game, as it were. Mm -hmm. The other part of his code is never on no Sunday. So when uh, Slim Charles kind of starts to lose control of the Barksdale soldiers. This is when the Barksdale, you know, enterprise is really falling apart. Um, they go after Omar on a Sunday while he's taking his grandma to church, and he says, you know, he just loses it. He says, never on no Sunday. And actually, Avon also is upset. He also wants to follow the Sunday truce. Yeah, so you're right. Uh, Omar has a very strong set of rules for his own conduct and the conduct of others, but he doesn't play by other people's rules. Right. As he says when he testifies against Bird, he robs drug dealers. And yeah. That's, that's what he does. Another really interesting thing about the trickster archetype is that they're often an agent of change for the protagonist. So I would argue that throughout The Wire, the protagonist shifts um, throughout from season to season. Uh, but if we looked at McNulty as our protagonist, certainly in season one, Without Omar, they would have never really broken the Barksdale case open. I think that he's a key, he's sort of a key momentum shift for them in that when he's ready to testify against Bird for Brandon. That's true. And speaking of testifying against, uh, against Bird, he really just, I mean, he's getting his, uh, his vengeance because of Brandon, but I think he's also taking some delight in making up all these details. Mm -hmm. So that trickery definitely causes a reversal of fortune for McNulty. Absolutely. I think also in season four, if we compare him to Marlo, Marlo's really trying to become the kingpin, but 
Omar is a very big barrier for him in trying to get to that kingpin status. Yeah. And there's that whole scene um, where there's the, that ring is passed sort of from Marlo, then Omar robs Marlo for the ring, and then eventually Michael ends up with it, but not by taking it from Omar. He gets it through other ways. But Marlo thinks Michael got the ring by taking it from Omar. And, yeah. it, and it gives him a good bit of respect. Right. The other thing um, that the trickster, it's important to note, is that tricksters aren't motivated by malice. Right, so not necessarily motivated by malice, but are interested in bringing down the overly arrogant or the stupid. And we see Omar do this when he fools uh, the people that are guarding various stash houses. Mm -hmm. And he brings down Stringer as well, who's perhaps the most arrogant carer in the wire. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. Like, it's not motivated by malice. It's motivated, a lot of it, by retaliation for Brandon. But also about, he just thinks it's wrong to put your gun on a citizen. So yeah. he's, you know, he's willing to do something. So we talked about how code switching is a marker of the shapeshifter. And I think the same is true for the trickster. I think that there are instances in which Omar engages in patterns of code switching um, that mark his sort of trickster nature or his unpredictability. Yeah, absolutely. So as an example, Omar is this stick-up boy, lives a super tough lifestyle, and yet he's one of the very few characters in The Wire that we don't hear swear. Mm -hmm. um, so his refusal to kind of engage in that profanity, I would say, is a type of code switching mm -hmm. where we don't really know um, what Omar is all about linguistically. Right. And he, he even doesn't want Brandon to swear. Brandon yeah. says, fuck Bailey. And, and Omar is like deeply offended and says, you know, don't, I don't want to hear those filthy words from such a pretty mouth. Yeah. The other uh, form of code switching that I think he engages in is that he has these moments of uh, where people would have typically underestimated him. So, for example, when he's waiting to testify against Bird, he's sitting there with the security guard, and the security guard is doing um, a crossword puzzle, and he says, what's the Greek god of war? I put Mars, but it doesn't fit. And then Omar says, Ares. And it's just a really, well, it's another interesting allusion to the Greek mythology that David Simon and Edward Burns so much loved in the series and to play with. Um, but also I think it's, it's a form of code switching where we know not to underestimate Omar. Yeah, he's basically bringing out a new lexicon that we didn't know he had. So the third archetype that we're going to talk about is the fool, which is a classic archetype that we see a lot in Shakespeare. Mm. Um, for instance, the character from King Lear that is just named the fool mm. and uh, other examples as well. Uh, for instance, the Steve Martin comedy, The Jerk, I would say that he's a, a fool archetype. Right. What about the Big Lebowski? No. Da Donnie. Yeah. Donnie's yeah. the fool for sure. Yeah. No question about it. Uh, I've never seen The Jerk, but I did see The Big Lebowski. Yeah. So, um, okay, so that's cool. So the, the Fool isn't all about just being stupid, though. Well, I think one way we should think about The Fool is that whereas the trickster and the shapeshifter are very self-aware, The Fool is not self-aware. They don't know, you know, about their foolishness. And it's not just for comic relief, and it's not to, you know, be portrayed as stupid. It's, uh, there are some other reasons why 
a, a writer might use a fool character. Mm-hmm. So in The Wire, who's the fool? I think Ziggy is far and away the biggest fool in The Wire. Without a doubt. Which is not to say that he's not tragic. He is. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Ziggy is just the butt of every joke. Yeah. And I think for a lot of it, he, he definitely doesn't know why he's the butt of every joke. Well, as our dad said when you were watching season two with him, or just as a side note, listeners, our dad is watching The Wire for the first time ever right now, so it's very exciting. Um, but when he was watching some of the scenes with Ziggy, he said to you, he just doesn't get it, does he? Yeah, he just doesn't get it, uh, which is true. And that's one of the characteristics of The Fool is that they sort of represent um, a bit of optimism because they are they never think that they're going to fail at anything right um and so we see this with Ziggy with all of his crazy schemes you know he's Mm -hmm. a schemer he wants to steal the cameras and he wants to get into the drug trade and every time Nick discourages him Ziggy says ah you know come on I got this yeah he just doesn't understand and I think we can talk about uh masculinity roles uh for uh, I'm sure we could build a whole another podcast around it but It's interesting to me that I think often Ziggy is trying to exert his masculinity in these uh, capers that he's pulling, but he's so often emasculated at the end of it. Like, even when he does pull those cameras, he's still the butt of every joke, you know, because he he takes one of the cameras for himself and says, say cheese, and George is, is just horrified that he took one of the cameras and he's taking photos and of course in retrospect at the time they didn't actually know how digital cameras worked so that was that's a whole other interesting thing to watch here but Mm -hmm. so I think that yeah even when Ziggy is trying so hard to be taken seriously he's still always the butt of the joke and another way that the fool acts as a foil to the hero or the protagonist is that Sometimes the fool represents um, the side that wants to press on when the hero or the protagonist doesn't. So I think we see this with Nick Sabatka when Mm -hmm. he's the voice of reason and of caution and he doesn't want to get deeper into the smuggling and he doesn't want to steal the cameras. And then there's Ziggy being this kind of double voice on his shoulder saying, no, like, let's do it. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of that reckless optimism. It's true. Well, and when Ziggy does these capers outside of partnership with Nick, for example, when he steals those cars, the Mercedes, um, it's often, you know, that is the end of Ziggy. This scheme is what ultimately leads Ziggy to his basic total downfall because he gets put in jail for the rest of his life for killing George the Warehouse guy because George treats him like the fool and he doesn't take him seriously. He doesn't give him all that he's owed for the Mercedes and Ziggy's just the butt of the joke again. Yeah, and... What's interesting is that before that point, fools tend to be lucky or have all these favorable circumstances. And I think we see that with Ziggy in the way that he always has someone to bail him out of trouble. Yeah. Um, when Cheese and his crew are going to kill Ziggy because he owes the money, Nick has to get the Greeks involved to help him out. Yeah. Um, and there are other examples like that. Like, even just how he is always a nuisance on the docks. He probably would have lost his job long before if 
Frank Sabatka wasn't his dad. Yeah, I mean, that first scene with Ziggy sets us up for how Ziggy is going to be. That's the perfect fool archetype, right? He gets fired, and then they're like, oh, no, the, the guy is his dad. Yeah. The other, the other example that you were talking about with how he keeps messing up the package is when he's talking to White Mike, and White Mike won't give him another package, and Ziggy says, come on, aren't we friends? And White Mike says... Yeah, because did you fuck up the last package? And Ziggy says yes, and then he says, "Are you dead?" And Ziggy says no, and he says, "So we're friends," you know. Yeah, so exactly. I think, yeah, he's often bailed out of um, what for anybody else would be probably a life set, life threatening situation. Totally. Um, and then probably most distinctive is that the fool archetype they just wreak havoc unknowingly. Right, so as where a trail of destruction. Whereas the trickster is working to wreak havoc and is purposely putting this in into the universe, the fool unknowingly is wreaking havoc. Right, and leaving a trail of destruction. Yeah, which I think is best epitomized by the Ziggy and the Duck scene. Yeah, which is so sad. It's so sad for a number of reasons. Like, let's break this down. So, Ziggy gets the duck because he's finally flush. He so he goes and he gets a duck. And first he's going to get a pigeon, like a smart carrier pigeon, but then he ultimately gets a duck. He buys a diamond collar for the duck. He brings the duck with him to this watering hole that they always hang out at. And he, for a moment, I think, feels like the hero, right? Like he and this duck are welcomed warmly. Yeah, and for the first time we see all the other stevedores talking with Ziggy and, you know, being friendly with him and they like the duck and he almost has a moment of popularity, which a we don't see with Ziggy. No, and so for once he's not the butt of the joke. He's got this duck and he's being treated like an equal. So what ultimately ends up happening is they give the duck beer and liquor and, and the duck dies. So the next scene that we see with the duck is, uh, I think it's Nick that comes in and he asks the barmaid, um, what's with the duck or what happened to the duck? And she says, he drank himself to death fucking Ziggy. And all of a sudden Ziggy is the enemy again. Yeah, because everyone just blames Ziggy for feeding whiskey to a duck when really, you know, it was everybody. Yeah, and they were all part of it. But of course, it's just another one of Ziggy's foolish schemes. The duck dies and Ziggy's held accountable. Yeah. And even just everything that transpires in season two is kind of catalyzed by Nikki's, or sorry, Ziggy's foolishness. You know, he's the one pressing for Ziggy or for Nick to do more business with the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are the things that lead to everybody's downfall. Frank Sabatka's death mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he, Frank Sabatka, wants to, you know, testify against the Greeks in order to save his son. Yes. Which is making me think of uh, code switching, because Ziggy also code switches. He code switches on a number of occasions. Yes, and Ziggy's code switching is a very clear marker of him playing the fool. Right, so when he tries to be tough and he tries to be street, that's when he sort of tries to use the street talk, where you know Nick mocks him for it several times. Yeah, he's sort of affecting this, you know, black dialect uh, that is so put on and so false that it makes him look stupid. Yeah, absolutely. The other example of code switching I really think of when I think of Ziggy is when he's confessing the murder of Glegas to Landsman, and he's 
beside himself. He's so upset. We think he's full of remorse for this murder. Um, but when he's reading over his statement to sign it, Landsman says, you know, just read it through and then sign it. Ziggy says, um, can I change something? And Landsman says, okay, just, you know, write your initials by whatever your changes are. And so Ziggy says, okay, well, it's, it's just that this says he asked me not to kill him, but it should say he begged. He begged for his life. And you can see that Landsman's pretty disturbed by this because it's quite a, it's almost cruel to write in the man's confession that they begged for their life. You know, it's like Ziggy wants to exert more power over the situation than he even had by... Really? I read that completely differently. How did you read it? Well, I think when he's saying, oh no, I wanted to say he begged for his life, it's he is so caught up in the the grief and the remorse of it all that he doesn't want to tell a a single word of a lie. He is giving the full confession in its complete entirety, no detail spared. Wow. Okay, that is a total different read than what I had. But... I mean, regardless, I think it's still an example of code switching in that he has moved from when we saw him being the little schemer using his street talk. Now here he is in the um, in the confession, changing up the language to be much more kind of descriptive, I guess is the yeah. word. Yeah, it's just, it's a different lexicon and it shows then another kind of pitiful side of him. And yeah. I think pitiful is a trait of the fool. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, once we see him walk into the city jail, it gets really, then we really have a lot of pitiful feelings for him because that's when Frank is watching him go and you can just see that he's so worried. Yeah, it's awful. So those are our three archetypes. Now we need to hear from you. Which one of us has it right? What did Ziggy mean when he switched the words from ask to beg for his life? Yeah, this is a really important question. So tweet us at Rewired Podcast and let us know who, who's read the scene correctly. Yeah. You can also email us. Podcast.rewired at gmail.com. This episode was hosted, written, directed, edited by Bailey Reed and Kelly Reed, and we use the Opinion app to do it. So thanks, Opinion. You can also find our theme music on SoundCloud. It's by Flo Florg, and it's a remix of Tom Waits' Way Down in the Hole. And we hope that you'll join us again next week. Way Down in the Hole.